This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am back from uh, sunny Central Illinois, um, and uh, we have an exciting episode today with a first-time guest on this podcast. Um, he's had sort of a, a meteoric rise in the intellectual firmament. Um, he's the host of a podcast called Conversations with Coleman. This might give you a hint of who I'm talking about. Um, he's also a contributor to the Free Press. Um, and, uh, and his writings appeared all over the place. Uh, Coleman Hughes, welcome to the remnant. Glad to be here. Long time listener. We'll get you the best doctors. Let's just, just sort of start, like, just tell us, just, it doesn't have to be a, you know, you walked uphill both ways narrative for, you know, a long time, but like, what's your story? Like, where'd you come from? How'd you get into this weird line of, of work? Um, that kind of thing. Grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, a suburb that many people know, about maybe 10 miles outside of New York City. Very nice suburb, known to be both wealthy and racially diverse and progressive. Kind of place where mixed race couples and gay couples move because of its reputation. To be clear, move into town, not out of town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mostly as a kid was from the age of, say, 11 on, I was into music and I was uh, pretty gifted. I was a and still am a trombone player who specializes in jazz. Uh, I was a good student when I was in high school. End of high school, I applied to music conservatories and some traditional colleges. Ended up going to music conservatory first, Juilliard in New York. Ended up leaving after about six months when my mom passed away, had a kind of existential crisis, and decided I did not want to go to school for music. So I transferred or actually just dropped out and reapplied to Columbia University where I did a four-year degree in philosophy and played music on the side. About halfway through that degree, I started becoming very curious about the culture at Columbia, which was decidedly more progressive than even the progressive town that I was from, decidedly more anti-racist, uh, which was, I, guess, I suppose, a new word, than even my my the older cast of my black family members that grew up d during Jim Crow and I be I became very curious about what seemed to me a level of hyperventilation about racism out of proportion to the reality I was experiencing started writing about this for nobody just in long google docs trying to understand what was going on eventually started trying to write for somebody um a friend of mine had that I made sort of randomly had written this piece for Colette and I figured if he could do it, I could do it. 
So I submitted to Colette and I guess the rest is history, as they say, uh, that that launched my writing career, which a few years later launched my podcast career, my speaking career and so forth. And that's how you may know of me. That's where we are. All right. Your entire educational experience was sort of uh, dancing around uh, where I grew up because I grew up on 84th and Broadway. Um, and I used to get the bus to school in high school, uh, right by Juilliard. So, uh, but, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a different time. You know, that, that park by, uh, Juilliard's what, like 68th, 69th and Broadway, or is it like 65th, 65th. Okay. I'm thinking of that whole Lincoln center complex is one giant thing. And, uh, you know, there's that park, that little tiny triangular park, like off of Broadway around there. Um, in the seventies, that was called needle park because that's where all the heroin addicts hung out. And, uh, um, they actually made a pretty terrible movie. I mean, a terrifying movie about how bad New York was in the 1970s called panic and needle park, which was a true story about the three days of the total heroin shortage in New York. And, uh, anyway, the only reason I bring it up is because, uh, my wife has insomnia sometimes. And she was, when we were dating, she stayed up late and um, got hooked on that movie, Panic in Needle Park. And she was like, oh, it's so terrible. And all that kind of stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's right where I got the bus to eighth grade. <laughs> you know? um, and then, uh, New York City in the 70s was a thing. Um, hey, look, it's, it's be- be- better than getting hooked on the needle. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Better. Always better to watch a movie about social pathologies <laughs> than to be one. Um, so... Uh, why don't we just, just sort of start, you know, you write a, a lot about um, race and identity politics stuff. And I, I, I always wanted to ask this about some of the guys who, you know, sort of some of my intellectual heroes like Tom Sowell and, um, well, I don't want to, I mean, Tom Sowell is easy to call an intellectual hero. I, I don't want to get other people in trouble by calling them intellectual heroes, but like there are, there are a lot of black writers who, um, and intellectuals who I think sometimes get stuck and i think it's a much bigger problem on the left right where they just get stuck with writing about one topic um um and you're sort of coming at it from the other angle you're criticizing a lot of people who just write about one topic right you're 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 right you write a lot you criticize the people who are obsessed with with some of this kind of thing but do you ever resent having to sort of like be dragged into these kinds of arguments all of the time um because it's I'm glad you're doing it. You know, I'm glad John McWhorter pushes back. I'm glad a lot of these, you know, guys push back. But like, it would be a better world if you didn't have to push back on a lot of this kind of identity politics kind of stuff. It's kind of a paradox because I, uh, I was never very interested in race as a person. As a kid, I was very interested in philosophy and science and understanding, you know, what makes people tick. And the reason I got, I became, I guess, interested in race was really because everyone around me seemed too interested in it. And I guess my my identity was relevant there because being a black person on Columbia, I was constantly being pulled into this narrative, being told, I mean, in some cases, literally told, you are a victim of racism. And I, I was scratching my head saying, why on any other topic, we I would get to decide or I would get to tell you what my experience is. My experience on Columbia's campus is one incident of racism in four years 
total fluke from a guy that was totally unrepresentative of everyone else on campus. Other than that, the least racist place you could possibly Im- imagine, at least towards black people. That That's the real experience, the li- my lived experience, to, to use a phrase that is often used. And so the total disconnect between reality and narrative was, that's what was interesting to me, not race itself. I grew up, because of where I grew up, I was able to grow up being close friends with kids of every race. Therefore, race never seemed to me to be intrinsically important. It seemed to be intrinsically completely insignificant, and it still seems that way to me. My default attitude towards race, racism as a kid was racists are idiots. I feel bad for them for the most part. And let's just get on with this. Let's get on with the business of being interested in whatever you are interested in as an individual and using and cultivating whatever talents you may have been born with to contribute to the world, right? And don't have racial rules about who you're friends with, who you will work with, who you will love and marry, and that's it. I mean, to me, that armed with that attitude is pretty much all you need on the topic of race or all you should need. And and it's, it's all, all I cared about until I was dropped into, I felt like I was dropped into a simulation at Columbia where the the actual racism dial had been turned to like 0.1, but the concern about racism dial had been turned up to 12, right? And I th- that fact was curious because it, it was a, a fact of social psychology, a social psychological phenomenon going on that was curious to me and was particularly emotionally annoying to me because I happened to be black. So yeah, so I guess, I guess in the end, look, I choose to write about it. I could choose to do something different. I believe that you shouldn't make a bunch of intentional choices in life and say, oh, people are forcing me to do it. You got to own up and take responsibility for your choices in life. But I am in the paradoxical situation of being someone that has written a lot about race, but not because I'm interested in it, but because I'm disinterested in it. And I'm curious about why everyone else is obsessed with it. Yeah, no, look, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. I, I think, um, you know, there are, and I have all sorts of issues as, as a writer that are less, less fraught, less um, wrapped up in concepts of identity and authenticity and all these kinds of things. But nonetheless, I feel a sense of ownership of pushing back when there's like a huge amount of wrong think and group think coming down the pike and you're like, crap, is no one else going to get off the bench and do something about this or say something? Um, so I'm totally sympathetic with it. But, you know, William F. Buckley always used to uh, he famously uh, complained about people who argued about moral equivalence between the Soviet Union and the United States saying, um, uh, if you have one guy who pushes old ladies in front of buses and another guy who pushes old ladies out of the way of oncoming buses, it will not do to describe them both as the sorts of men who push old ladies around, right? I mean, the context kind of matters. And um, poking holes in in the sort of iron cage of, of racial identity stuff um, is very different than constantly writing about the iron cage of identity, right? I mean, they're, they're sort of antipodal. But I, I guess the thing that I think I, 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 I kind of find fascinating, and I wonder what your thoughts on this are, is that we have these two competing philosophical lines of thought on sort of when it comes to race from the left these days. And one is 
the absolute importance of authenticity, right? Personal authenticity, being true to yourself and all that kind of this sort of Rousseauian thing. And also the importance of identity. And the thing is, people don't seem to really explore the fact that the two are at odds, right? That, that to be truly true to yourself means not being defined by this abstract category that is common to millions of other people. It means being your true, like you're a trombone player, you know, you're, your guy who went to Columbia, you are like, for me to sort of sum you up as you're a black guy with, while well, saying the same thing about a football player, a basketball player, a drug dealer, and an orthodontist is sort of as silly as saying they're all people who have beards, right? I mean, it's like, it's not an important characteristic, but we seem to conflate identity, you know, this belonging to this abstract category with authenticity, which if you actually take the word seriously or kind of or the concept seriously, they're kind of at odds with each other. Not they 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 are not necessarily complementary, and yet we're told in the sort of woke politics stuff that they're almost synonymous. Am I just is this just gibberish to you? Or does this make sense? Oh, it makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. There there is a tension there. I mean, the woke definitely encourages you to be true to your identity, and then. This other notion of being true to your individual self, I, I wouldn't blame that just on wokeness. I, no, I wouldn't either. Yeah, that's like a wider, even liberal, I would say, kind of view that you get from movies and culture and TV and, and a American culture, I would say, um, America's individualist culture. What you said, you know, you, you, you highlight this tension. Barack Obama at some point said, there are as many ways to be black as there are black people. And I thought about that and it struck me this is a total evasion of the trade-off, which is uh, exactly what great politicians are good at. They are great at saying things that seem profound, but when you unpack them, all they are doing is not acknowledging that there's a trade-off between two things that people want, right? If there are as many ways to be Black as there are Black people, Blackness is a completely empty concept. There's, an, there's another quote from, from The Incredibles that this reminds me of. It's with the the, the kid that can run quick like the flash. Oh, dash, yeah. <laughs> the, the parents say everyone is special. He says, that's just another way of saying no one is special, right? Blackness, to take one example, could only have meaning if there were ways of being that were not included in blackness, right? If it exclude, it has to exclude some ways of being for it to have a meaning at all. Any way of being a human being is compatible with blackness then you've just said blackness is skin deep, which I agree with. But he wouldn't say it like that because, well, he's a politician and he has to say things in a way such that everyone can interpret it to be aligned with their values. And that's that's the skill of being a politician. He's also the first black president, right? So that there's a huge there's a huge amount of equity and value in the concept of blackness. You know, why were we all celebrating having the first black president? Mm hmm if blackness is a meaningless concept, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, it's almost kind of um, false modesty, you know, for the first black president to say, ah, blackness is not that big a thing, right? Because obviously it's a big thing and it should be a big thing. It was a big thing that we had a black president. That was great, but you know. So what if it's that the, the fact that we elected a first black president says something about us, the population, namely that we're not as racist as we thought that we have made a lot of progress doesn't necessarily mean Barack Obama's blackness, his black identity must mean something. It's really comments on the population, right? 
That's fair. I think that's totally fair. You know, I mean, that's just not the way he's mar- he marketed himself as a politician. Right? Sure, sure. So let, let's go back to your days at Columbia, because, you know, you might have heard me say this on here before. It's one of my obs- sort of obsessive points. But um, when you're talking about how the actual racism was near zero, but the uh, attentive to it was 12, I often fall back on this metaphor um, and metaphors can often get you into trouble that we that American culture on race, on sexism, on lots of things basically has an autoimmune disease. And when you have an autoimmune disease, you know, your, your immune system, when you're, when you're, when your immune system is working properly, it attacks bad things, germs, diseases, viruses, whatever. But when it's, when it's turned way up and it starts attacking healthy organs of the body, and breaking them down. And I mean, there are different kinds of autoimmune diseases. The metaphor only can go so far, but the, I, it's sort of like, to take it out of race for a second, our obsession with free speech in this country is in part the product of the fact that free, that speech has never been freer in a lot of ways, and it freaks people out. And so changes at the margins. We often freak out the most about the thing we have the least problem with because our, our attention to it is so turned up. And um, you know, for me during the, the Black Lives Matter protest stuff and the, and, you know, the sure sign that we had some sort of autoimmune problem was when kids at the University of Wisconsin were tearing down statues of, of, of Northern abolitionist soldiers. Um, you know, if, if you're starting to tear down people who gave their lives fighting to end slavery, <laughs> um, you've kind of lost the plot a little bit and you're just in this kind of like, riot of iconoclasm let's just tear everything down kind of mode yeah i like the analogy of autoimmune that's a really great analogy i hadn't heard that before the response you want in in the presence of racism is something proportional and targeted what we actually have is uh yeah like you know a complete attack on even the healthy systems you have i mean it's it's very common for an incident of racism or alleged racism at, say, a university to cause a backlash against not just, say, the individual student who is a racist or the individual professor who is a racist, but the fundamental institutions and systems of the university. Why, why do you get people calling for an end to the standardized testing in response to a student that said the n-word on its face those those seem to have no relation until you realize that there is you know a, an ideology that has swept elite universities and a lot of other institutions which links meritocracy free speech markets the rule of law standardized testing etc and says that all of these things are built to benefit straight white men and built to exclude black brown people, women, LGBTQ, etc. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd love to get back to a situation on campuses and elite institutions in general where, I mean, look, they're always going to be racist, I think. I'm not a believer that we are ever going to rid the world of racists any more than we're going to rid the world of mur- murderers. I mean, anti-Semitism has been around for a while, too. It just, it's a thing. I agree. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's interesting to look just look at what people's expectations are around murder, right? No one actually expects to rid the world of murderers forever. No one has that expectation. Yeah, murder upsets us every time we see it in the news, 
but a hundred years from now, no one on earth would bet, or even a thousand years from now, that there isn't a single person, a guy that, you know, killed his wife's secret lover or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And yet people seem to have an actual expectation of zero racism, right? Which is really strange. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. And, and again, it's sort of, it's part of the problem with the autoimmune thing, right? To the, it's sort of like, I mean, this is a ba- another fraught metaphor, but it reminds me a little bit of like a super fun cleanup. Mm-hmm. You know, the you know, EPA requires that, and I'm, I'm for cleaning up these toxic sites and all that kind of stuff. But the last 0.1% is like as expensive as like the first 98% right. to do. Cause like you're getting down to these last microns and that kind of thing and parts per billion. And, um, uh, if you have a policy of absolutely zero racism, the amount of policing of ideas and of conversation and free exchange is that is required for that is just is going to be so expensive as a matter of sort of cultural prioritizing that if instead you just had this sort of attitude of there's going to be some of this and we're going to have social opprobrium and and shame people and make people feel stupid and and reactionary for saying stupid and reactionary things. And then let's just move on. Um, uh, you probably have a healthier society. You'd also have less of a chance of a backlash against this kind of environment. I mean, I think the sort of alt-right, you know, uh, Peckerwood's, you know, the Fuentes crowd, they're a direct result of the obsession with racial identity. Um, and uh, you get, you often buy backlashes in the same categories that uh, you're, you're kind of pressing. I mean, like you also have all of these idiot guys on the far right with all of their obsession with, with weightlifting and masculinity and hating women and all this kind of weird crap. And I think, you know, that's how you got romanticism was a rebellion against reason. It's how you get all sorts of things is, is, is you it's, I hate, we have a sort of no Hegelian rule, no Hegel on this podcast rule but there is a sort of a dialectic <laughs> quality to it right you kind of buy exactly what you're trying to get rid of um you you reap what you sow i guess is a way to 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 think about it yeah i mean jordan peterson made this point a lot but if you're if you're going to tell you know straight white men that yes you should be thinking about your race and you should be ashamed every time you think about it you're going to tell someone born into this world by no fault of your own simply by virtue of your skin color and your genitals, neither of which you chose, you have been born into the bad race that has done all the evil things, and you should hang your head down in shame and know your place and and submit uh, to the opinions and will of the people who your forefathers oppressed. There will be some that will say, yes, sign me up. I'm a masochist. There will be some that say, I'm not playing this whole race game to begin with. And, and uh, I'm not playing the game of being either the bad race or the good race. And that's where I want people to land. But unfortunately, there will be some that will go go in the opposite direction and will be driven into the arms of, of the people that say, no, you're actually, you're not the bad race. In fact, you're the best race. You're better than all the others. Look at all the amazing things your forefathers did. And you inherit that legacy. And you should feel not shame or neutrality, but pride. And look, that's... <laughs> In reverse, that's really the source of the popularity of the Black Power movement and of Malcolm X. When trying to explain the the 
the popularity of, of African names and con- conversion to Islam and black is beautiful, you know, that stuff came directly from a history of being told, of black people being told that we're dumb and um, ugly, right? That's why it was so popular to get these people saying, I'm black and I'm proud. So when you do that to people, you do drive them right into the arms of race pride. And uh, that that's why the, the only answer in the long run is to tell kids that race is not important. What's important and what you should be proud of are your individual accomplishments, your individual attributes, how good you are to people, how much you contribute to your community, um, etc. And I think that is really where Martin Luther King landed. And it's I think it's the only the only workable principle for a multiracial, multi-ethnic, diverse democracy. Since you brought up Martin Luther King, I think one of the best arguments from modern right conservative, neoconservative crowd was always to say, I agree with Martin Luther King. Judge people by the contents of the character, not the color of their skin. And it's interesting how much pushback that gets from the left now. They're like, that's just one line you don't understand. Or don't you know, you know Martin Luther King was a radical who would have a, would have agreed with every jot and tittle of Black Lives Matter right. manifesto and would have um, enthusiastically supported woke activists, would have been right there with the rioters after George Floyd. Don't you know that that's who Martin Luther King was? Haven't you read? a letter from Birmingham jail. He hated white liberals and white moderates and and so forth. That's the argument. Yeah. And the thing is, like, there are a bunch of things to say that, first of all, it's sort of gaslighting, right? I mean, the idea that this guy who advocated nonviolence would have embraced violence is, you need to show me your work a little more (laughs) on that claim. By the way, yeah. I mean, it's not just that he advocated nonviolence. I'd say along with Christianity and anti-racism, nonviolence was a central theme of his entire life, right? Right. Like you could come up with a percentage of all the words spoken and written, dedicating just dedicated to, to come up with a pie chart of everything he ever talked about and how long he spent talking about it. Nonviolence would be a big slice of that yeah. pie. Christianity would be a big slice of that pie. And tearing down segregation in Jim Crow would be a big slice of that pie. too. Right, right. And and I get it. Look, he was he was he was more left wing than than I am, and the, probably you are on economics. That's fine, right? He was. Yeah. He was. He sounded like Bernie Sanders on economics, and you could call that radical. He was uh, part as part of his nonviolence. He was against the war in Vietnam long before that was a, the popular position. So people play hide the ball with this. They say, "Oh, he was a radical. Look at his economics. Look at his position on Vietnam." totally which is a a misdirection from what they're trying to imply which is that he's a radical on racial identity right there's you you can't find almost a single word in his entire record suggesting that he thought you know race racial identity was an important psychological thing to cultivate right and that we should care more and more about our race and i want you to see my blackness and all the rhetoric of sort of BLM, he, he was very much in favor of tamping that down. And he, all he talked about was universal humanity, common humanity. In Christ, there is no black, nor, nor white, nor no Jew, nor Gentile, nor Greek, etc. 
that was the thrust of his message on race. Yeah, and, and but the thing that bothers me a little bit about it is, I mean, I agree with all that, but um, you, get, you get a problem when you start turning people into saints. And 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 look, I, I think Martin Luther King was a heroic figure in American history, don't get me wrong, but I don't have to um, agree with Martin Luther King's economics because I agree with his racial vision. You know, any more than I have to uh, agree with everything Donald Trump said. Um, I'm not. I'm not comparing Martin Luther King to Donald Trump, but you know what I'm saying is like, uh, you know, like H. L. Mencken had some problems with Jews. He was also a really fascinating writer, you know. And you can take pieces of some people are right about some things and less right about other things. You can agree with them on X and disagree with them on Y. And the idea that somehow I get this pushback all the time about, well, you know, if you're going to quote Martin Luther King, you should agree with all of them. By what law do I have to agree with anybody about everything? I mean, there's there's lots of stuff I really like in Nietzsche. I also disagree with Nietzsche about a lot of things. I mean, like serious people having serious conversations can say, you know, who was right about this, but not about that. And but when you start turning, when you start beatifying people um, and giving them a sort of mystic authority, you know, like Gandhi was right about a couple big things and he was bat guano crazy about a whole bunch of things. And you can acknowledge these things without sort of having this transitive property that says if they were right about X, they also have to be right about Y and Z. Right. I think Martin Luther King was was right about Jim Crow and segregation. He was right about um, America's hypocrisy in sustaining those racist systems. I'm not a Christian, so I would I would argue theologically he's wrong about God, although I think his the fact of his Christianity may have helped him uh, connect with both the black and white public on the on the issue of racism and common humanity. I think uh, economically he was, I don't think that, I think if all of his economics had been implemented in the 60s, America probably would be worse off than we are now economically. If we had um, a, a full employment policy, for instance, I'm, I'm not sure if that's economically sound, but you know, I'm not, I'm not an economist. I just know enough to know that, you know, there, there are certain, certain varieties of socialism that really are not worth the, the, the inefficiency they create. Um, and there may be certain varieties that are worth the inefficiency that they create. And I'm not sure he really observed that distinction. Um, and I'm also not a pacifist. He was sort of in principle, a pacifist in, in a way that is, um, that 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 I definitely wouldn't agree with, and uh, all, although I think he was totally right about the war in Vietnam, in, in in particular. But yeah, I mean, your wider point is totally well taken. Nobody, you know, what are the odds that any person is the first human being in history to get everything right? I mean, you can make those claims about religious figures, right? Like, I mean, I'm not a Christian either, but um, I don't I don't begrudge devout christians were saying jesus was right on all of his points right because that's sort of what the religion is about right and you make similarly like i'm not going to get into a big argument with with a muslim about muhammad you know because it's where it's a category error to, to nitpick some of these kinds of things but um but but thinkers get some stuff right some stuff wrong a lot of stuff sort of is contestable and you know and in, in and reason in a democracy, reasonable people can can pick and choose which parts of arguments they find persuasive and which parts they don't. And it just 
I find that Martin Luther King is one of these figures that you're, there's a lot of pressure to sort of, you have to, if you accept a little, you have to accept the whole thing. And I, it, it just frustrates me. Um, I normally would never ask anybody about their religious beliefs unless they say something like, I'm not a Christian. So they're kind of volunteering <laughs> something. Uh, uh, do you mind me asking, like, what, are you an atheist? Are you uh, agnostic? Are you Muslim? Or are you Baha'i? <laughs> I'm, I'm an atheist. Uh -huh. Um, and I've, I've done meditation and, and I think there, I see a lot of value in terms of personal happiness in religion, but I don't think I could ever bring myself to believe uh, any particular religion is literally true. And um, I was not raised with any particular religion, so I don't, which I think makes it that much harder to believe anything literally. If you, if you have no, you didn't really get soaked in it as a child mm -hmm. definitely a fan of buddhism so i'm a fan of buddhism from a from a personal happiness and inner peace perspective and and from a diagnosis of the human condition perspective um, i'm a fan of some aspects of religion in terms of creating community and um, giving people giving normal people reasons to do good for others to go above and beyond to 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 give back etc uh but no i'm an atheist in terms of the actual my actual beliefs about how the universe was probably created whether we have reason affirmative reasons to believe in a creator and a god yeah i'm, I'm not gonna take the bait and get into a bit a fight about any of that <laughs> um but uh i'm just kind of <laughs> curious um um you're i think you're the second avowed atheist I probably had plenty of atheists on. I don't know. Oh, well, no, it's a third. George Will and uh, and Charles Cook. So you're in pretty good company. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's um, it's funny because I got to do this thing later today with the Atlas Society, which is a Randian group. And uh, every now and then I get in trouble with the Randians. Um, William F. Buckley's argument about why Randians couldn't be part of the conservative movement um, was that uh, you don't have to be a believer to be a conservative, but you have to have some respect for the role of religion and of the transcendent in some way. Um, you can't be, you can't be mocking and antagonistic towards it and be part of the conservative movement. And I, I always thought that was a good, a, 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 a good formulation because it was just sort of a practical thing. You can't, you know, as you know, you know, there are a lot of jokes about atheists and vegans, you know, um, you know, because, uh, all premised on the idea that atheists and vegans can't stop talking about their atheism or their veganism. And um, just as for a political movement, it's difficult to have people saying, you guys are suckers and you're addicts of the opiate of the masses um, all the time. And uh, um, it also just leaves out, like having respect for religion at some level and the role that religion plays is kind of necessary to appreciate Western civilization also, because you don't get Western civilization without the interplay of the role of religion and in, in, um, its development. And anyway, so I just think it's sort of, an, it's an interesting topic, um, to kind of get into whenever it comes up. I only reason I asked is I just know there can be listeners saying, how come you didn't follow up on that? So I followed up on it. So, yeah. Oh, actually. So it's interesting. You know, my grandfather, um, on my dad's side grew up, in Christian science. Oh, really? Yeah. 
which is, uh, you know, it's a kind of very niche, some would say cultish uh, sect of, of, I guess you could call it Christianity. I'm not even sure. It's kind of pretty distinct where, you know, when you get sick, instead of taking medicine, you pray because the belief is disease is a consequence of not being right with God. And you've had people die of diseases because they didn't get medicines. And it's, it's really, you know, the, the ugly side of, of dogma. Um, and when he was about 30 years old, he walked into a bookstore and saw the fountainhead on a shelf, purchased it, read it, and became an atheist overnight. Is that right? Essentially, that's, that's how the story goes, yeah. So, uh, so he is very much the Ayn Rand kind of atheist that couldn't have been a part of Buckley's conservative movement because he, he wouldn't acknowledge, I think, any role for the transcendent uh, or suspension of reason or anything like that. I'm not quite that kind of atheist. I'm, I'm not the kind of atheist that talks about it unless prompted just because, let, let's put it this way. The only times I've had interesting arguments about, say, the existence of God or the truth of religion were with extremely deep believers that had an extremely literal interpretation mm -hmm. of the text. So I've had some interesting debates with people that have read every word of the Bible and would are interested in, say, like rec reconciling textual contradictions because they take every word literally those those kinds of people sometimes i have interesting arguments with but for most people they don't take the text literally um and it's it's about filling the god-shaped hole which i think exists in in the human soul so there's not really much to argue about so yeah i i guess i'm 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 whatever that kind of i'm the kind of atheist that recognizes the importance of the transcendent and the spiritual but like i said i can't actually bring myself to believe the, the literal truth of any particular religion and that, i really mean that like if i wanted to if i accepted that it was good for me i still actually couldn't bring myself to believe it was true for better or for worse again that may be that may be a yeah bad look thing. i i'm not a big you know I'm not a big proselytizer of religion myself, but um, sometimes God has a sense of humor and we'll fast forward to like 15 years from now and you'll be, you know, in the choir <laughs> speaking in tongues or whatever. Um, but maybe not. Um, I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it too. I doubt it, I doubt it too. <laughs> but uh, that's just, you know, it's just, I've known people who convert to religions and the passion of the converted thing is a real thing, you know? Um, and I, I think that's true for, not just religion, but for all sorts of things, in, including ideological conversions. I mean, some of the most obnoxious, um, uncompromising right-wingers and left-wingers um, are people who used to be on the other side of the political aisle. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's something about human psychology is that, you know, it's like if you grew up in a religion, you kind of know where you can bend the rules, you know, and where you can't. But if you if you convert into something, you don't have that depth perception to understand where the, uh, where there's give in it all. And you just have to buy into everything. And I, I find that's true with all sorts of people, um, in all sorts of, you know, all true believers, not to get all Eric Hoffer. Um, you get, you get that kind of thing. All right. So let's get back to some of this stuff. Um, you're a critic. I'm a critic of of reparations for for slavery. 
Um, I think we're both pretty on the record that slavery was very bad. Um, what do you think is like the best argument for reparations? Like what is, what is, when you're having these arguments and these debates, what is the claim? What is the strongest claim that you have the hardest time pushing back against? Well, I, I would say there's one claim which I don't push back against, which is that I'm I'm totally fine and even in favor of reparations policies to living victims of racist systems within uh, people who are still alive. So, for example, there was one I read about recently: the city, the city of Evanston the suburb of Chicago, instituted a policy for black residents of Evanston who were shut out of the housing market pre-1967, 1968, pre-Fair Housing Act, and tried to compensate them for the value of not being able to purchase homes if they could show that were not that they were not able to purchase homes. See, that kind of like local local policy targeted towards living people who suffered financial damage as a result of a racist system, I'm for that. So in that sense, I'm not against reparations full stop. I'm against reparations for slavery. I'm against reparations for the third and fourth and fifth generation and sixth generation descendants of people who experienced slavery. But I'm not against all kinds of reparations full stop. So, so that's an argument that's so good i don't i'm not even really opposed to it an argument that i am opposed to but is but is difficult for me to refute or difficult for people to be persuaded by my refutation i guess is um you know the notion that black people living today are financially worse off as a result of slavery from a wealth perspective and therefore should be made whole should be their bank accounts and wealth levels should be should be changed such that they are as wealthy as they would have been had they never been subjected to slavery, had their ancestors never been subjected to slavery. Um, now, this is something a lot of people find to be very persuasive, but but I don't, and I, I don't. I'm I'm not even I'm not persuaded that we really know the the full counterfactual of where black Americans would be today, but for slavery. I think that that is, um, it's a kind of social scientism to coin a word, right? It's like scientism is, is this critique that sometimes people make scientific claims about things that actually nobody knows is true and have a sense of false precision, right? That's the key, false precision about something that actually no, nobody, it's too big a question for any human mind to actually have a coherent answer to, which is to say, how would the how would the country and the world be different if not for slavery? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know how my the path of my family would have been different had my ancestors not been slaves. I have no idea. Um I, I can't I don't think I could honestly say that my ancestors being enslaved being enslaved had harmed me. You know, like, I don't know what the butterfly effect of my lineage, you know, how that would have ended up differently had I not been a slave. And so, I mean, maybe you can say in the aggregate, black people as a whole are are worse off, but you can't say it about any individual person. Right. And I, I guess like a group claim is very difficult 
a group claim nevertheless gets remediated on an individual level, right? Like you're giving a bunch of individuals a check for X amount of dollars. And yet there's no guarantee that any any particular one of them was harmed in, in that kind of proportion and even even may have benefited in some some strange way. Like so, f- for example, reparations advocates want to say that even though, say, you're white, right? But say your your ancestors did not own slaves at all in this country. Doesn't matter, they will say, because you benefit from the infrastructure and the wealth that slaves enabled and built, right? Slavery was the engine of the economy, and it they say it was responsible for why you know America was so such a dynamic and important economy. And therefore that tide lifted, you know, the boats of of white people who didn't even own slaves. Well look, if that's true, that tide also lifted black Americans. Right. If 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 slavery was was the kind of um, turbocharger of the American economy that shot us ahead of the rest of the world, then by definition, that must have benefited every black person that worked in this economy long after slavery. Right. If you're going to make that argument, then it, it has to it has to go both ways. You know, at the end of the day, I just I don't know how to adjudicate the claim that I am worse off because my ancestors were slaves in this country. I mean, I'm with you. And, you know, and, 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 I, and I kind of frame the question in an unfair way because, you know, it's I'm, I'm asking you to focus on the most fraught part of the debate. And but like I just I'm a Hayekian guy. Right. And so I just go back to the idea that social justice isn't a thing. Um Justice is a thing, but your point about how reparations or or just compensation for living people who are the victims of unfairness, and it doesn't have to be about race, it could be about anything, right? I mean, um, uh, if if you were treated, if you were individually treated unjustly, you deserve to be made whole for it, um, and you deserve justice. That's what the justice system is for. But this idea that you're going to do five generations out, um, collective punishment and collective reward um it's just a cover story for distributive economics right it's 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 just a um it's 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 a permission structure to write checks to certain constituencies and tax other constituencies um and the idea that you have intergenerational collective guilt um is not a very liberal idea and it's a and it can lead to all sorts of 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 terrible things. I often think about, you know, on this question, which is probably too fraught for me to dilate on too much, but um this question about not knowing whether you are better off or worse off on an individual basis because of, you know, what happened to your ancestors. There's a wonderful book twenty years ago by this guy Keith Richburg, who was a column who was a reporter for um the Washington Post, African American guy, and he it's a sort of an autobiographical thing about writing about Africa, about the role of races in America. And um, he got a lot of grief for it, as you can imagine, because one of his conclusions was that he was actually pretty fortunate that his ancestors unjustly were taken to America um, because America is actually a pretty great place to be a black person today, right? Or in the late nineties when he was writing right. um, that gets fraught in all sorts of ways, but like, 
Um, it's a little analogous to, you know, Holocaust was very bad. Um, just like slavery was very bad. But one of the upsides of the Holocaust is the creation of Israel. And at least for for Israelis, Israel is a very good thing. And for a lot of Jews, Israel is a good thing. Um, uh, history is just weird like that, right? And this idea that somehow we're just going to empower people to right past wrongs when there are no living members of the wrong, to me, it just it's just a emotionally charged way of saying we're going to break the rules for how we distribute wealth in this country and what and how we confiscate wealth in this country um to reward my side of a coalition and I, and 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 i just think it's an incredibly tribal dangerous way to think about economics and politics and justice yeah no i i definitely agree um yeah i mean it it, it is taboo to say something like that i'm better off but you know history is strange like that i mean if you're going to think of the analogous me, which I put in quotation marks because it's, you know, again, a nonsense concept at some level, but the analogous me born in Africa um, because my ancestors were not carried over in the Middle Passage. It's like that that person is not better off, right, um, than, than myself born in America. But again, this whole, the whole line of thinking I would... I would challenge, right? Like this whole line of thinking, oh, the hypothetical me, if history had gone a totally different way, like we don't know, right? It's it's complete, this is why I say it's complete scientism. It's complete false precision to say, I would have been different in this way had all of history been totally different. Um, it's like, no, you don't know that. I don't know that. And to make a claim on that basis, on the basis of that logic is complete false precision like over intellectual bs um in my opinion that's why we generally bound justice claims within your lifetime and and sometimes even within smaller spans of your lifetime like in the, in, the, in in any crime that has a statute of limitations um there's a reason we do that because when you extend things over that length length of time it just becomes a cold case it becomes uh, you know it, we end up litigating things that we don't can't possibly know the details around uh and it becomes it gets very ugly it's, very quick it's funny it kind of you're you're much younger than i am um but uh in the 70s and into the early 80s there was this incredible fad with this idea of reincarnation and past lives and all this kind of stuff and you'd always get people saying uh you know, in, in my past life, I was a princess or in my past life, I was a, I was a knight or in my past life, I was a king. And it's like, no one ever says, you know, in my past life, I was a miserable serf <laughs> um, who had, you know, horrible cases of, of, of bowel stewing diarrhea. And I died at an early age, right? It's always like you were some great and glorious person in your past life. This idea that everybody, but for something that happened to an ancestor of mine, five, 10 generations ago, I would be the king of the world. It's just, it's just not how life necessarily works. And I'm not trying to belittle the, the incredible, the enormity of, of past wrongs, you know, I mean, you know, Holocaust and slavery are the two in the Western world, the two great evils of the last 300 years. And, um, and I'm sure someone's going to email me and, and list some others and that's fine. I'm not trying to belittle others. I'm just saying that you can't, 
do these straight line projections about any of this kind of stuff. And, um, and you should always doubt somebody who says, and therefore I get a check, right? I mean, because motivated reasoning when it comes to right. me getting a check is very common on all sorts of issues, not just, you know, racial issues. Um, uh, people, you know, people argue for their self-interest um, or their constituency's self-interest all the time and all sorts of things. Yeah, this is one of my, I mean, one of my biggest pet peeves about race-conscious policies in general. I'm talking about affirmative action. I'm talking about any policy that leads to, you know, me checking the black box on some piece of paper and getting priority as a result, getting an, any level of advantage, let's say, even if it's small. Um, in explaining why people are so into these policies no one ever ever allows for the role of self-interest right like no one you know there's a whole cognitive science literature around how people like you say will get to the answer that privileges them in particular and will use all of their intelligence and iq and cleverness to arrive at an argument that lands on me getting a benefit but no one will ever acknowledge the role that that plays in the advocacy for affirmative action type policies, right? Like at, at bottom, where is it in my self-interest as a black person to ever take seriously an argument against race-based affirm affirmative action? It's benefiting me. Why would I do that, right? But there's this view that, I mean, there's this implicit worldview, at, at least behind wokeness, that really white people are the ones that are self-interested and self-motivated and um, oppressed people have a kind of, by virtue of their oppression, a moral high ground. Um, and that's sort of lurking in the background of, of woke ideology. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I'm kind of obsessed with some of this stuff these days about how, particularly in higher ed and in elite universities, so much of the ideological political talk I see basically as the cultural equivalent, you know, that on those on like CNBC, the, the, co the, the, the term for these guys who go on and tout certain sectors or certain stocks, um, they say that's talking your book, right? Because that actually the investments that they have, right? They are into these sectors. So they want to talk them up until so you're on there talking your book. There are vast swaths of sort of the educational industrial complex that are so wildly invested in certain ideological constructs that they have to constantly be talking their book. Everything has to be bent towards some intersectionality thing, some racial or, or feminist issue, or, or now some transgender issue. Everything has to, uh, you know, uh, be the product of the things that they're experts on um, because it's in their self-interest to sort of say, to be the priest who governs this issue. And it's kind of, um, it's kind of the logic of the cancer cell in the sense that like, or like, like everything becomes a racial issue. If the only thing you know how to talk about is race, everything becomes a feminist issue. If the only thing you know how to talk about is feminism. Um, and you see analogs to this in journalism. I mean, the, like I, I'm in journalism, been in journalism all my life. I think the First Amendment's really important, yada, yada, yada. But um, journalism, uh, elite journalism writes an enormous amount about journalism, 
because they're interested in journalism and they want journalism to be much more important. If you swapped out every major editor in the country with um, a nuclear engineer, coverage of nuclear engineering would go way up and coverage of journalism would go way down. And this is my problem with a lot of the campus stuff is that you have a lot of scholars, a lot of academics with PhDs. And if all of a sudden you were to argue, if, if all of a sudden your your view on race, my view on race, which is that it should, it's not, it's not meaning necessarily meaningless in a cultural context, but we put way too much emphasis on it and we should talk about other things and judge people based upon their own merits and all that kind of thing. A lot of these people, you're breaking the food bowl of an enormous number of people that this is their portfolio. This is the only thing they know how to talk about um, is this sort of identity politics stuff. And, um, and that sort of self-interest aspect just never gets, you know, and, and it, what's amazing to me is, is like, these are people who always argue about the self-interest of other people. Right. Oh, you're just doing that for profit. You know, they have all these Marxist explanations for why everything's about someone's doing something just to make money or someone's being bribed to do this or, you know, the incentive structure is always or or their motives are all racist or whatever. And they never look at the incentive structure for their own business models. So, yeah, this is a critique that is both true, but can be leveled in, in every direction, uh, in, including at me or at you. Uh, but it's still true. So, I mean, another way of seeing this is to look at advocacy organizations, right? Say you are an important anti-racist organization, such as the NAACP, or insert any organization here, right? You you painstakingly create this whole institution to fight X, and uh, you you get funding, and you know. It, for good reason. You get funding for a good cause, you fight it, and God forbid you're successful in actually really beating it. The only thing worse than not achieving your goal as an anti-X organization is actually achieving your goal. Because what happens then? You've created a family and a community around fighting this thing. And now you, you successfully eradicated, let's say, not all of it, but maybe most of it, are you then going to declare your own irrelevance? Well, almost never, right? It's so it goes runs so counter to human nature and to the nature of uh, any organization or bureaucrats to 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 declare their own irrelevance. So what they what they tend to do when they're successful, which is sad, is define down the thing they are fighting. Um, so you you really don't get rewarded as an institutional as an institution fighting any bad thing in the world you don't get rewarded for success unfortunately success success puts you on a path towards becoming irrelevant towards decay right i mean that's sort of the story of the southern poverty law center you know where they just kept expanding their definition of of racism to justify their continued existence but I mean, we, again i like your point that this is a point you can make about all sorts of institutions this is not you know, this is, you know, the American Society of Civil Engineers um, every year puts out this report card about the state of American infrastructure. And people who want to invest, want to spend a lot of money on infrastructure always say, look at the, it's, this is a perfect example of the scientism kind of thing you were talking about before. You know, it's like we have this cult of experts and, uh, oh, the American Society of Civil Engineers comes out and says we have a D plus rating on infrastructure. Um, 
And very, very rarely will anybody point out that the American Civil American Society of Civil Engineers is a lobbying group that makes money off of big public works projects. You know, <laughs> of course, they're going to say we have a they're not going to say, oh, we have an A plus. We don't need any new infrastructure because that's not their business model. Um, and uh, and that you find this in institution and after institution is that people are talking their book is they want the things that they're in charge of and that make that that give them status forget the money part i mean because i think status in some ways is a more important driver of 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 human motives than money is um and uh it distorts your thinking you want to be the important person you want to be the person that people call up about this issue or that issue and um and that people get quiet and listen to you on and if you argue that my issue is actually not really important, um, you know, it pisses people off. And this is something I, I try to check in with myself often, right? So I'm someone who complains and criticizes uh, woke excess. And uh, the danger in that is the same danger there is in, in criticizing anything, which is that you end up exaggerating it or um, not recognizing its decline because you are invested in being a person criticizing it. So I, I, I've often gotten the question recently whether I think wokeness has, has peaked and is, is in decline. Uh, and, and it's something I try to, as much as I can, check in with my psychology because the, the temptation, I guess, would be to say, oh, no, it's worse than ever, right? Because that's how I've, uh, that's the issue on which my writing and speaking became popular, right? Um, but the truth is, I think it, it did peak in probably like 2020 and 2021 and is declining from that peak with the caveat that the peak was so astronomically insane that a decline from that peak doesn't really signal a return to the, you know, the, 2012 or 2011 status quo and i was i was definitely worried about wokeness when it was far far less potent than it was in in 2011 say 2020 nevertheless i think it's something you have to be sensitive to as a commentator as a writer as a thinker because the the pull of incentives and audience capture is has corrupted many a good commentator yeah, I mean, I, th 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 I'm glad we're moving out of the realm of, of, of race on this because this is, um, you know, if we were talking offline I would, and you wanted my advice as a, as a writer, and this is not aimed at you, this is a advice I give all young writers who get a, who, who start making a name for themselves is you have to be prepared to disappoint your biggest fans. Because if all you do is listen to your biggest fans, your biggest fans are always the ones who say in response to your mistakes, you didn't go far enough. Right. And that's how Pappy Cannon became Pappy Cannon. That's how Ann Coulter became Ann Coulter. Um, you start becoming a caricature and you start doing performance for your fans who just want to hear Freebird at every concert. Right. And, um, and it's a real danger because your biggest fans are your fans. Like they, like when everyone else is attacking you, they're the ones who sort of say you're good, you're right, stick to your guns, good for you, and it hurts to disappoint your biggest fans. But it's a huge, uh, particularly in this age of micro-targeting media, right? It is a huge temptation to just 
perform for your little slice of the pie exactly as they want you to. And I think back on like, um, in the early 2000s, there were people who must have felt like they won the lottery who had been obsessing about the dangers of radical Islam for a really long time. And then all of a sudden the dangers of radical Islam were huge and obvious. And there was a sort of, there was, I don't want to call it a moral panic because it was like a legitimately, like when they knocked down the world trade centers and attacked the Pentagon, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't just paranoia. It was like a legitimate reason to be freaked out. Right. And, and it was interesting watching those guys over the last 20 years, um, either change to some other thing or still sitting there banging their, you know, their, their alarm at a thing as the rest of the country kind of moved on. And, um, and you never know. I mean, it's like, you never know you've, you've eaten too much until you've, you've eaten too much, right? You know, you never know whether you've, you're stuck on something for too long because the problem with the wokeness thing, and I agree with you entirely, I think it's sort of trending down, but it's still way too high is that, um, it is so pervasive that you can always find examples of it, right? It's not like you're going to see it go away. Um, and, um, and I think one way to think about it is your point about murder, right? There will always be wokeness. I mean, we used to call it political correctness, you know, I mean, like it's a thing. Um, there's always going to be a, they're going to be committed ideological cadres who have control of certain institutions that we think are crazy. They're always going to be them. The question is how much of a problem do they pose? And, um, and as long as you have that in mind, you know, the, you, you can sort of check yourself before you wreck yourself on like how obsessed you get with certain things, you know? Really? I think the, really the, the crux of the issue is not how many woke people there are, but whether they have power in, in institutions. Right. And I'm seeing them have less and less power in institutions by what I'm reading in the New York times, the kind of score stories that are being allowed through at the New York times at the Atlantic. I guess the kind of you, you could maybe you could even see it in the kind of jokes and that that are allowed in Hollywood movies. I can see the needle the needle moving, um, and it's not like I have no desire to for there to be zero wokeness or zero any more than any sort of political ideology or cult. I just think you know right now you see wokeness. The, the number of really woke people in the Democratic Party, the percent is probably like single digits. And yet you have major politicians saying Latinx, right? You have like Elizabeth Warren using the word Latinx when only 4% of Hispanic people like want that term. That's a perfect example of the disproportionate force that wokeness. I would love for wokeness to to punch at its weight rather than so far above its weight. Because sometimes woke people do make a good point. So they should be a part of the conversation in proportion to their numbers, not 10x, 100x, which is the situation now. And also the, the Latinx thing, I think, is a good example of this. And I, I, you know, I, I obsess about it sometimes. But the problem with the Latinx thing isn't using Latinx in and of itself, right? It started in academia and, you know, in, sort of in, in, in obscure journals. You know, if they want to use those terms there, because like you're not supposed to have gendered pronouns or whatever, whatever, fine, you know, knock yourselves out. What offends me and where it's a problem is where we credit 
Elizabeth Warren when she thinks, when she says she uses Latinx to be inclusive, when in fact it's an exclusive term, right? It's a, it's a shibboleth that is only understood by a handful of people and actually offends most Hispanics, or it certainly offends more Hispanics than it, uh, than it pleases. And not the fight against the woke, the power, the power of wokeness stuff seems to me is you can let people talk however they want to talk, but you should not concede the ground that they are the more tolerant, more racially or ethnically enlightened people because they talk like that. That's the problem, right? It's making people, it's, it's, it's implicitly calling people bigots for still using Latino. That is the problem with Latinx. I don't give a rat's ass if you want to use the word Latinx. Just don't tell me that I'm a bigot for not using it. And I think that's the sort of um, the pernicious part of that. And it, which brings me to a, a question I want to ask you about. Like when you say woke people make have good points sometimes. I agree, you know, and like the argument for um, the concept of institutional racism. Um, I remember when it was a uh, you know, when, I remember when critical race theory and critical feminist theory was was the hot thing in the early 90s and late 80s. And I've always thought there was a good point to it, which is that, yeah, there are times when you have undesirable results, even though there are no, there's no evidence of actual intentional racism on part of anybody in an institution. And, um, we can have arguments about, you know, disparate outcomes and what, how we're supposed to interpret them. But it seems, it always seemed to me a perfectly legitimate thing to look at, right? Is to say, what are the unknown unknowns that are leading to these results and maybe can we fix them? And, you know, and so when Pete Buttigieg said that, that there was institutional racism in some of America's infrastructure, I think he was right in the sense that poor black people, you know, this is not news to anybody in a you know, in the 1930s through the 1970s, or even today, did not have a little, a lot of political power. So in a lot of places, the place where they put the railroad tracks was, or where they put the sewage or water treatment plant or any of that kind of stuff was the place where nimbyism was the least politically powerful, right? Where, um, and in communities with a lot of poor black people, those were poor black people in communities with no poor black people, but a lot of poor white people. It was the poor white people, right? I mean, like, that's how sort of this stuff works. And so, you know, Robert Moses did all sorts of terrible things in New York in terms of infrastructure based upon, you know, who had political clout to stop him. And I have no problem with those kinds of arguments. My problem with the arguments is when they then say, I'm a racist for disagreeing necessarily with their proposed remedies for it. Because I thought the whole point of the structural racism, institutional racism argument was to explain how we have uh, racially undesirable outcomes, even though there is no r racist intent behind them. And it's sort of now used as a way to say it's racist intent. It's the, it's the Imbram Kendi thing, right? It's basically there's no safe harbor. You can't acknowledge certain problems unless you also agree with the sort of distributive distributive economic proposals that they favor to fix the problems. And, um, and I'm just sort of wondering where do you come down on, you know, this idea of structural racism or institutional racism or the critical race theory stuff? I think structural racism and institutional racism are, they are poorly defined concepts 
And that is the reason for your confusion. So the, the term institutional racism comes from the book Black Power, published in 1967 by Stokely Carmichael, uh, later changed his name to Kwame Ture, and uh, I think Charles Hamilton is the professor's name. And the examples, they oppose institutional racism with individual racism. Individual racism, they said, was KKK burning a cross on your lawn, etc. cetera. Uh, and institutional racism was like a, a loan shark preying on poor black people, a, uh, a real estate agent not showing you a home because you're black. Right? So they gave these examples, which upon examination really are examples of individuals acting in a racist way, but for not really for a purely racist reason. They may be acting in a racist way for a financial reason. They may think, oh, property values go down in this neighborhood where I sell if I sell it to a black person. So um, I'm going to be racist towards this black person instrumentally for financial gain. And it's not a violent kind of racism. That's really what they meant by institutional racism. And I I, I think that's fine. I, I If that's what you want to call institutional racism, even then it's maybe more individual. But yeah, at, at the end of the day, institutional racism today often actually does reduce to a witch hunt of individual racists, which is um, at odds with what you would think the concept is for, which is not to find individuals that are racist. In the end, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical of how useful a concept it really is. Because at the end of the day, if we're going to say an institution is racist, we have to isolate the variable that is racist. Is it the policy that is that is racist? Is it the way the policy is being selectively enforced that's racist, right? Is it that we're busting kids for weed, for nine bags of weed in the hood, but not at Harvard, right? That's the selective enforcement of a policy. And if the policy can only be enforced selectively, then maybe it's a bad policy, right? Um, does any of that require institutional racism as a concept? That's arguable. I'm not sure the answer is yes. But maybe, maybe that's the proper application of the term. But, but again, like this is the term is so nebulous and so poorly defined, and its definition seems to shift by the day. I, I, I don't really think that it's that useful. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I mean, I, I think I agree with you. I mean, it, it, it is used basically as a stand in for social justice, right? And social justice means whatever the purveyors of social justice claim it means at any given moment. And that's the problem with it, you know? Um, when you were uh, studying philosophy, who, like, who's your, who are your favorite philosophers? Let's see. I liked, I always liked Bertrand Russell. I liked, um, I mean, you know, I didn't really have like a, a particular favorite philosopher. I liked John Stuart Mill quite a bit. Bertrand Russell wrote one of my favorite essays. I, I, I'm uh, one of my weird essay, uh, obsessions is I hate philosophical pragmatism. Um, like pragmatism, small p pragmatism, right? But, um, uh, and, Bertrand Russell wrote this fantastic essay called On Pragmatism um, that he just, he tore them all to shreds, which I always, I always loved. 
even though they they once ruled the roost at Columbia University, but that was a long time ago. Although Richard Rorty was a pragmatist and he wrote some good stuff. There's a lot to Rorty that I really like. Um, um, and Rorty is one of these guys, I mean, we can, we don't need to get deep, deep in the weeds on this, but like there's a lot of philosophical similarities and cultural similarities um, or par interesting parallels between Nietzsche and, and Heidegger and William James and Dewey and Rorty. And there were sort of similar projects, but it's, Subject for another podcast. <laughs> um, anyway, Coleman Hughes, uh, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it and hope to have you back. My pleasure. All right. So uh, Coleman has left the uh, studio and um, it was great to have him on. I want to apologize if I s intruded or stepped on his uh, answers uh, too much or inappropriately ever. He has, uh, I was just talking about this on the podcast the other day about how Charlie Cook has like the best use of silences in his, uh, his rhetoric. Um, Coleman stops to think, and it took me a little while to realize that he wasn't finished saying what he was going to say. He was just pausing, whether for effect or, or just to, to gather his thoughts. And I would jump in and I feel bad about that. So if it sounded like I was, uh, uh, riding roughshod over him um it wasn't intentional and i apologize um things are very complicated uh very busy i had a great time in springfield i have thoughts on illinois agricultural policy that i will share with people at some point because i learned a lot um and uh um really just salt of the earth great people um out in the illinois farm bureau um and uh um i'm glad i went I did not enjoy getting there or leaving. Um, it is a difficult place to, to get to and leave. Um, and, um, but I can scratch off my list, uh, having been to, uh, uh, Bloomington normal airport, which is, uh, a fantastic little airport. Um, so since I did the solo podcast earlier this week, and even though I've gotten a lot of email from people saying that guy is a psychopath and a Philistine, for being horrified by the idea of two solo podcasts in, in one week. We are not going to do the second podcast as a solo. Instead, we are going to do it as a hybrid. Uh, sort of, uh, what is it the French bowling instructor says in The Simpsons about brunch? It's not quite breakfast. It's not quite lunch. But you, have a, you can have a good meal and you have a slice of cantaloupe at the end. We are going to do a Ask Me Anything thing with Guy hosting. And uh, so send us your questions. Send them to Guy. You can send them to guy.denton at aei.org. That's guy.denton, uh, D-E-N-T-O-N, at aei.org. He is sitting there kind of laughing, but also horrified that I've given out his email to the universe. Um, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I want to be very clear about this. It doesn't bother me in the slightest that I have done this. Um, you can also uh, hit us up on Twitter. It's... Uh, at Jonah Remnant um, with various questions, or you can put them in the comments to this podcast, which is probably what I should have. Well, no, because this won't be out. We'll record it before anyone sees this. So it doesn't even matter. What am I doing? Right. Oh, no, no. It's going to, this is going to come out tomorrow morning, right? You can nod. Yes. Okay. No, it's not coming out tomorrow morning. It is coming out tomorrow morning. Okay. So if it's coming out tomorrow morning, uh, there'll be time for you to do it. We'll put a thing in Twitter. I feel very stupid. Uh, because we're breaking our schedule to do this because I'm leaving town on Friday. 
uh, to go on a long planned vacation. Uh, we're going with friends and, um, um, I don't know how much more I'm going to talk about that, but, uh, other than that, um, I don't have too much to report. Don't know if I'm going to be able to get a G file done today because we have an investor meeting and a whole bunch of other meetings for the dispatch today. Uh, but I'm going to try, um, because I am nothing if not a servant, um, to G file readers. So, uh, with that, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.